Assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. I want to start this episode by wishing you all a very Merry Christmas. I hope all of you who are traveling uh, have safe travels, and I hope that you all get to enjoy some quality time uh, with your families this holiday season. Um, so, yeah, hope you have a Merry Christmas. Now, as far as scheduling goes for the podcast, we have a little bit of a uh, two-part series, I guess, if you will. Um, so if you heard in the intro, uh, we talk about the concepts and software, and we are going to be focusing in big time on software today because we are going to be going over at least some of my top picks for some of the best open source projects and software that you can use both for, you know, development purposes, writing writing code and testing code, um, and also uh, things that you can run in your home lab um, and just quality open source uh, projects. So that's what we're going to be going over in this episode. And then in next week's episode, uh, we'll be tackling some of the hardware um, that you can, you know, run some of these uh, open source projects on and some some recommendations and kind of my picks for that. So definitely be sure to tune in for next week's episode as well. Uh, and let's get this episode started with our trivia question. This week's trivia question is, this U.S. county is often described as being the home to the internet capital of the world. Is it A, Loudoun County, Virginia, B, Napa County, California, C, Travis County, Texas, or D, Wake County, North Carolina? And again, that is one of those four counties is known as being the or housing the Internet capital of the world. So that is your trivia question for the week. So there was some uh, some news broke this week. Well, I guess it's been kind of out for a while now, but. Um, Apple recently announced that they are going to be halting sales of their Apple Watch Series 9 and Apple Watch Ultra 2 uh, coming at the end of this week, um, which actually by the time this episode airs, uh, they might actually be stopping sales on their website altogether, which actually, actually, yeah, they are. Um, So... Yeah, hopefully, if you wanted to get a Apple Watch Series 9 or an Apple Watch Ultra 2, you either already made your purchase or you're going to be making one uh, very shortly. So, to get everybody up to speed here, um, there was a—basically, the gist of it is a company um, filed a— uh, like a trademark patent dispute, um, Mass Massimo, I think, um, is the is the name of the company. Anyway, they filed an an ITC or an International Trade Commission 
um, they, they filed a complaint with them saying that Apple had infringed on some of their patents relating to the Apple Watch's blood oxygen sensors. Um, so the ITC commission announced in October that they would be upholding the judge's decision, I guess, from back in January. Um, and this uh, 60-day review period, I guess the president has the ability to veto it. Um, but Apple is essentially preparing for the event that the president does not veto it. And essentially Apple will be unable to, con- unable to sell uh, the Apple Watch Series 9 and the Apple Watch Ultra 2. Um, so the presidential review expires on Christmas, so, uh, I don't know if President Biden's gonna give Apple a Christmas miracle or something, I have honestly no idea, um, but, yeah, Apple's basically taking, I guess, preemptive steps, uh, in order to deal with this impending ban, I guess, of them being able to sell, uh, their devices. Um, so it prohibits Apple from selling their devices. But one thing that's kind of interesting is apparently other companies are still able to sell the devices. So I guess like Apple is will be unable to or is going to stop selling them um, on their website um, starting at 3 p.m. Eastern time. They're going to be killing sales on December 21st at 3 p.m. Eastern time, and then the in-store inventory will no longer be available uh, starting or after December 24th, rather. So, but the interesting thing here is that apparently, like, just regular retailers like Best Buy or Amazon or anything like that still is able to sell them. So I guess while they still have inventory, they're able to sell them. So obviously, I guess it'd be a supplies last type of a thing since I guess coming uh, December 25th, um, I I think the import of new Apple Watches is essentially blocked. So they wouldn't be no more new inventory would be coming in. So pretty much the you know, companies like Best Buy, Amazon, other technology suppliers, um, they would be able to sell what they have, but then they wouldn't be able to get any new inventory after that. Um, Of course, Apple is against this whole decision, and assuming the president does not uh, veto this decision, they will be appealing it uh, to try to, um, I guess, get it reversed. But even if they do appeal it, that won't, like, allow them to... Uh, continue selling the the Apple Watches. They would still not be allowed to sell them unless uh, the appeal happens and then it gets overruled. But until an overruling happens or Apple, I guess, makes like a settlement or pays some kinds of licensing fees, um, yeah, they will be unable to sell Apple Watches. So that is kind of a big oof. Um, so like I said, hopefully you got your Apple Watch Series 9 or Ultra 2 if you're planning on getting one. Um, otherwise, I would uh, run out to the store ASAP or uh, go on your 
technology online retailer of choice <laughs> and uh, and get one because they uh, potentially uh, might not be around for, for much longer uh, with how this is going. So the thing that will be interesting to see is how this will affect future Apple Watch sales since if, like, for, for the next generation of Apple Watch, like the Apple Watch Series 10, if that's what they're going to call it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that since apparent since the the supposed patent infringement is on the blood oxygen sensor so they would have apple would pretty much have to either completely redo that and how they use or implement the blood oxygen sensor or they'll have to pay licensing fees to this uh company massimo or however you pronounce their name um i'll have a link from nine to five mac uh in the in the show notes that you can uh, read at your leisure if you're if you're interested uh, but that was something i just thought was was kind of interesting and of course it has to happen like right before christmas time right um so i guess on the one hand it was nice that they pretty much uh made it so that people could get the Apple Watches in time for Christmas, assuming they were proactive and aren't like last-minute shopping type of a deal. Um, but yeah. So with that, let's get into this week's cybersecurity tip. So this week's cybersecurity tip is almost certainly going to be a major facepalm to anyone that has been listening to the podcast for a while or has any shred of knowledge about cybersecurity and keeping your accounts and whatnot protected. So CISA, which is the uh, cybersecurity, like they deal with a bunch of like cybersecurity stuff, they urge manufacturers to eliminate default passwords after recent industrial control systems or ICSs attacks. So you heard that right. Manufacturers, I guess, apparently are relying on default passwords as part of their infrastructure. And I don't think it shouldn't be... Um, any reason you shouldn't have to have to ask why keeping the default password on any device, let alone an industri- like a, an industrial control system that you know deals with you know whatever, uh, is a bad idea. <laughs> because if you're not aware, um, one of the go-to solutions if you forget the password to log into your whether it's your router, a network switch, or some other device that has some kind of web GUI, the go-to solution is to open up your web browser of choice and search the interwebs for what is the default credentials for X appliance. And then you'll get some results. You'll find what the default username and password is. You'll enter them, and Bob's your uncle. You're get, you get logged in. And it's bad enough to have that, like, at your house, but if you have devices like this that are accessible um, from the broader internet or just accessible from 
like anywhere just in just in general that isn't a a locked down nobody can get in type situation that's really really not good um so so yeah if you are whether you are deploying um you know infrastructure like this or you have you know just a router at your house please 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 do not use the default password change it my goodness um now sometimes the default passwords are quote unquote strong in the sense that an attacker can't just like log in like it's Back in the day, you know, it used to be like admin, admin, you know, username, admin, password, admin, and you're in. And generally speaking, I think it's better than that nowadays. But at the same time, if it's a default password, the default password is going to be out in the open on the internet. So if the event people get locked out of their device and they didn't change the default password, they can at least recover it. Or if you have like a like a reset switch or something it can reset back to the default password so then you can get access to it um so but i guess in this case they're asking for the complete elimination of all default passwords um not just necessarily uh people uh not keeping the default password enabled or keeping it active and like essentially not changing it from the default password um but yeah i don't think you need me to tell you um that you definitely should be at the very least changing the default password to be something that is not the default password um so yeah that was really kind of a facepalm um this week when i saw that pop up so yeah i guess people somehow for some reason are still using the default passwords for things so uh so don't do that and that is your cybersecurity tip for the week so we got a lot to talk about in regards to the software projects, but before we get into that, let's get into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So do you guys remember, like, I don't remember how many months ago it was when I mentioned that I was trying to kind of make my own operating system, and then I stopped talking about it because, you know, other personal projects happened? So I decided to sort of revisit that a little bit this week, and one of the big things that I got was I got a, a basic keyboard driver working, and in all honesty, I did not implement it the correct way, and uh, I the reason I say that is because the keyboard is working, I can, you know, type whatever I want. I can use shift to make the letters capitalized. I can use caps lock. I can enter the, you know, the keys above the number row, like the, you know, the the ampersand, the dollar sign, percent sign, all that good stuff. I can do double quotes, colons, you know, the curly braces. I can do all that stuff with the shift modifier. Um, the only issue... <laughs> is the CPU is always pegged at 100%. <laughs> and the reason it's pegged at 100% is because, like I said, I 
didn't technically implement it correctly. Because rather than doing it like on an interrupt-based system where essentially the CPU is just kind of doing its own thing and then it'll get an interrupt, um, basically the kernel will basically tell the CPU, hey, you got to uh, some data coming in from the keyboard, read it. Basically what's happening is that we're just constantly checking the keyboard uh, port driver thing to, to see if there's any new keyboard input to come through. So we're just, since we're constantly checking and looping infinitely on that, the CPU is just pegged at 100%. So not the best in terms of, you know, efficiency and, you know, battery life and all that stuff. That's going to be absolutely atrocious. Um but I guess on the one hand, only one thread or one core is going to be maxed out. So on, in that sense, um, it's not quite as bad, although it is still pretty bad. Um, but it does work. And the cool thing about that is it enables me now to essentially have a fully working... Um, command line in a sense where now I can check if an enter was ha an enter was pressed and then if it was I can parse the command or parse the the user input and check to see if it's a, a viable command and if so um, handle it accordingly so so that is pretty cool um, but but yeah it, it, it's definitely not implemented properly so I do have to at some point go back and actually fix that and implement it properly but I just wanted to get it working because I mean having your own OS is cool and all but like if you can't actually interact with it and, or do anything and it just kind of like boots up and then says like hello world or something kind of basic like that like you can't really do anything or play around with it at all. So that that's why I kind of push so hard to try to get a, a keyboard driver working. And while it does kind of technically work, it also kind of technically doesn't work that well. Um, but it does work. So I, I, I guess there's that. Um, so now let's move into some of the open source projects that I like. Um, and I think are, are pretty fantastic. So I, I, I guess what I should do is I should start by caveating this and saying that I am not going to cover projects that I either don't use or I haven't tried. So for instance, I'm not going to be including Nextcloud or Home Assistant in this list because while I've heard fantastic things about them and I've heard how great they are, I have not tried them, so I can't, you know, necessarily give my opinion as to, you know, actually how good it is. But with that said, I have heard good things about both of those projects, um, but just that's just kind of a heads up. If you have a project that you really, really like and I don't mention it, uh, chances are it's because I don't use it um, or haven't tried it or tested it out or, or anything like that. Um, so with that said, though, if I don't mention one of your favorite projects, definitely feel free to shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com and, uh, and let me know so I can, uh, so I can check it out. So with that, um, I guess the other last thing I'll mention is I'm not really going to talk about programming languages, uh, mainly because for the most part, uh, programming language are programming languages rather are generally open source um, and 
kind of like build tools that go along with them. Um, but I'm not really going to be covering those today. I'm going to be mostly focusing on just other just general kind of open source projects. Um, so with that, let's get into the projects, and this is not going to be in any kind of particular order, so it's not like the first one is the, the least important and the last one is the best or vice versa. It's just kind of a uh, haphazardly thrown together list kind of as I kind of came up with them and thought about them. So the first one, um, this one is probably obvious, uh, GNU slash Linux. So that one I think is is pretty obvious. Definitely one of the most famous open source projects. Um, and, and the reason why I'm lumping them together is because Linux itself is just the kernel, and then you have the GNU suite of like tools and compilers and and libraries and all that stuff that kind of goes on top of the kernel, and that's what makes kind of what we know today as Linux. Um, so I'm kind of lumping them together because both of them are open source projects um, and pretty much kind of go hand in hand, both absolutely amazing. Um, if you personally have never used Linux, I can guarantee you you've interacted with Linux before uh, because if you've ever gone to a website, uh, there is a good chance that that website is hosted on a Linux server. Um, and if it's not, um, well, there's a decent chance that maybe some of the code was written on a Linux server or maybe um, it's on like GitHub or on GitLab or something, and that's being run on a Linux server. So if, if you weren't aware, Linux more or less kind of runs the internet in regards to the infrastructure. Um, last time I checked, it had a sizable lead in market share, like in, in, in regards to like the data center space and uh, what servers are running, which, I mean, I think that's for good reason. It's a fantastic operating system for a server. Um, but as the Linux fanboys would say, um, this coming year, it's going to be the year of the Linux desktop. Um, just like last year and the year before that and the year before that. And I think even the year before that and the one before that, uh, <laughs> needless to say, the, the, pretty much every year is, is the Linux, the year of the Linux desktop. Um, it's just like uh, how Cowboys fans say this year they're going to win the Super Bowl. Um, yeah, we've heard that one before. Um, but pr I guess you could say that about kind of like any sports team fan base that this year is going to be their year. Um which I guess, on the one hand, if you, if you say it enough times, uh, eventually it'll it'll just happen. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so Linux and GNU, those are are definitely up there as far as open source projects. Another one, which kind of is sort of related, is Git. So if you're not aware what Git is, Git is the um, one of the most common um, version control systems out there. Again, was developed by the same guy that wrote Linux, Linus Torvalds. Um, it's fantastic. Um, it, I, I will admit it does have a little bit of a learning curve. So if you've never used Git before, it can be kind of a little bit overwhelming. Um, but once you kind of use it and kind of understand it. It is an amazing tool. Um, it prevents you from having to be in the situation where you have project 
project underscore backup project underscore copy underscore backup um so i'm pretty sure we've all been there um you didn't want to mess up your your current project so you basically copied the entire project and put it into another folder like called backup or something and then made your changes and then in in the event that you completely destroyed it you could easily just recover because you have your your folder copy of the backup well with git you don't have to do that because if everything's in version control all you have to do if you make it completely unusable is you can just roll back your changes to your last commit or the last commit where things were working and you're back up and going and don't have to worry about making a bunch of backup folders so git is a fantastic tool um i will say um even if you've used git for a while merging can sometimes be a pain um but that's not something specific to git um if you've used any kind of versioning control system um it they're gonna have similar issues with merging merging just in general is a pain it's really easy um if nothing overlaps but yeah that's why if you're working collaboratively on a project it's best not to step on what other people are working on because then you're going to run into some serious merge conflicts and it's just just not a good time. Um, but yeah, that's Git. Fantastic project. Um, another one that I, I do enjoy and use on a very regular basis is Firefox. I know Firefox is, it doesn't exactly have the largest market share in terms of, of browsers, um, and people obviously have are, are very, very passionate sometimes about the, their browser of choice. Um, but the one reason why I kind of gravitate towards Firefox is generally it's pretty it's been very good about being very, you know, privacy centric. Um, and unlike Chromium, it doesn't have to really worry about Google kind of being in control of it since while other Chromium based browsers don't necessarily have Chrome and Google's influence, they're still being built off Chromium, um, which Google kind of sort of controls in a way. Um, so if Google wants Chrome and Chromium to go a certain way, those browsers, they can modify the source code themselves because Chromium is an open source project. Um, but I don't know. I just like the fact that it Firefox is different and separate from from that whole thing. So that's why Firefox is there. Um, another one that I have on here is Pihole. Pihole is a fantastic uh, DNS solution. So rather than you doing your DNS from uh, like Cloudflare or Google or your ISP or wherever. Um, you, you can use Pihole instead. You can self-host it. Um, and it's a fantastic resource to block a lot of the ads that you'll see on the internet and also block trackers as well. Um, so it, it's just a really good way to kind of improve um, your privacy and just make your internet experience better, in my opinion. Um, because I, I, I honestly have forgotten how riddled with ads the internet is these days because I'm always connected to Pi Hole, <laughs> whether that's 
just me being on my home network or me being VPNed into my home network or to my cloud-based VPN, which also has Pi-hole on it. So I pretty much always am using Pi-hole. So then when, I, when I'm not using it and I'm just like, you know, using like my phone data or something and I just see like my entire screen get flooded with ads, I'm like, geez, is this what the internet is really like? And then I'll, of course, leave the browser, uh, turn on my, my VPN to get Pi-hole back, reload the browser, and then everything is just so much nicer um so yeah highly recommend piehole um the next one i have on the list is pf sense um which is a fantastic firewall slash router um system operating system based on freebie open is it freebsd i think it's freebsd um now, I know PFSense has kind of been in a little bit of hot water, uh, I guess, the past couple months um, with that. I don't know if I'd necessarily call it a rug pull, but they had this... I don't, not super familiar on all the details because I just have, I think, the Community Edition, which is the free tier. Um, but apparently they had like some kind of middle-of-the-road tier between the the Community Edition and the, the Pro here or something I, I like i said i'm not like super familiar in all the details but apparently they kind of got rid of that and pretty much forced people either to lose features or like pay more money for the pro tier or something um and it wasn't really communicated that well from my understanding um now i know a lot of people are kind of open sense um really into open sense which is essentially pf sense but it, it's like a forked version of pf sense um very similar um just differently not maintained by the same same people um so but i i really enjoy using pf sense the the ability to configure firewalls is pretty easy uh ability to configure vlans is also pretty easy um and just gen in general i think it's a pretty good uh router and firewall solution the next one I have on here is Bitwarden, and I've talked about Bitwarden before. Um, you can either self-host it, or you can actually use a Bitwarden itself. It's you can just use the, I guess the Bitwarden version, if you will, um, and you don't have to self-host it, but you definitely can. And personally, because you guys know me, uh, if I can self-host something, I am going to. <laughs> um, I, it just I like the added peace of mind knowing that my passwords are not only encrypted with good solid encryption, which you would have regardless of if you self-hosted it or not with Bitwarden, uh, but I also like knowing exactly where my passwords are, and that is on one of my servers that I control, and I don't have to worry about any, any shenanigans going on uh, with some cloud provider or something like that. So, so that is, I just like the, the added peace of mind uh, that self-hosting my password manager gives me. Um, so yeah, it, it's a fantastic password manager. It's open source. Um, there's also a kind of similar to PFS, PFSense. There's a, a forked version. I, I'm the name is kind of eluding me right now. Vault Warden, I think, is what it is. Uh, it's basically the same thing as Bitwarden, except they kind of remove uh, the paywall aspect from it. But um, because it's a forked 
um, instance, there it doesn't necessarily go through the same um, security audit scrutiny that Bitwarden goes through. Um, so that's kind of why I like Bitwarden. Plus, I I pretty much I don't use any fancy features that I would need to subscribe to Bitwarden for. So I, I pretty much just use it as a just I guess a dummy password manager, if you will. Um, but Bitwarden, fantastic password manager. There are also other password managers out there that you can self-host. I think KeePass is one of them. I personally haven't used that, but again, similar to. Um, like uh, Nextcloud and Home Assistant, I've heard good things about it, um, but I've been been using Bitwarden, and I've been and been very pleased with it. Now the next one is kind of I guess stepping back a little bit from Home Lab specific and kind of going into dipping our toes back into the developer space is VS Codium, which is not to be confused with VS Code which VS Codium is basically the exact same thing as VS Code. And VS Code, I also believe, is open source as well. But VS Codium is basically the exact same thing as VS Code, but without Microsoft's telemetry shenanigans. So it's basically the best of both worlds, in my opinion. You get a nice, super awesome open source. Um, It's not really an IDE, although it kind of sort of can function like an IDE if you install the right plugins Um, and IDE of course being an integrated development environment Um, so you can essentially you can you know basically click a button to run your code for you and has like syntax highlighting and all that good stuff so if you install the right plugins you can basically get VS Codium to be a a full-blown IDE now, one thing that VS Codium lacks from VS Code is some of the, I guess, Microsoft-specific plugins. Um, there's specifically one for, I think, C and C++ that you don't get access to with VS Codium. But in my experience, there are some pretty darn good alternatives um, to the Microsoft ones. Um, so I don't think you're necessarily missing out there. Um, so yeah, VS Codium quality text editor slash IDE um, definitely has been my go-to one of choice um, pretty much ever since I discovered VS Code and found out VS Codium existed. So it's been been pretty great. Uh, The next one is also a text editor, that being Vim. I've talked about Vim before in the past. Um, It definitely has a steep learning curve, that's for sure. Um, There's, of course, the infamous meme of how do you, one does not simply exit Vim. Um, But the reason why I like Vim and put it on this list is if I am having to edit some kind of file or edit some something on a server somewhere, Vim is pretty much my go-to uh, editor of choice. Um, and just having the skills to be able to to use Vim on a, on a, on a server like on a server environment or a terminal-based environment really makes it. It basically removes the the limitation you feel of not having a, a graphical user interface or a GUI uh, to edit files and, and manage configs and that kind of a thing. So Vim, quality editor in my opinion. And there's a ton of different spins of Vim as well. One of the most common ones I think is NeoVim. 
Personally, I haven't used NeoVim, uh, but I've heard good things about that as well. Uh, the next one on the list should surprise absolutely nobody, and that is Ansible. Uh, I Anyone that's listened to the podcast for long enough knows I absolutely love Ansible. Um, it's how I manage all of my server infrastructure in my home lab. Um, I even do development. Base, de- I use it for development purposes um, to deploy code to my remote servers to automatically do builds for me um, so I can te- do some, some basic testing uh, to see if my code actually compiles on other machines and to compile binaries for other operating systems. It is absolutely amazing. makes my life so much easier. Um, uh, it, it, one of the use cases that I've developed recently for it um, is is like initializing what I call initializing servers. So in, in my home lab, I have multiple, I'll call it base virtual machines. So basically these VMs just act as templates essentially. So I don't have to reinstall, go through the install process every time I want to spin up a new VM. So basically all I have to do is shut, is shut the VM down that I want to clone. So if, for instance, I want an Arch instance, I can shut down the Arch VM and clone it. If I want an Ubuntu instance, I can shut down that, and etc. So I shut it down, clone it, and then I can run my init playbook, my init Ansible playbook, and it'll spin up, it'll do all the changes necessary to get that virtual machine ready to be a new instance for the, the use case I want it to be, which is absolutely incredible makes my life so much easier um, and of course another famous instance I use it for is my backup script um, use that's another use case and an, another use case that I actually made for which is a little bit of an interesting one um, you you might recall if you've been listening for a while is a, I wrote a dynamic cluster compiler um, to essentially compile code across multiple devices all at once to take advantage of, you know, massive, you know, if you have a massive data center full of servers and you have an extremely large code base to essentially uh, divide up the uh, the source code amongst all those different nodes to each can compile a chunk of it and then bring it all together to be linked and built into the single binary. Um Speed-wise, um, <laughs> it's not that great. I haven't tested it on a large enough code base for it to actually show a speed improvement. Um, all the, but pretty much, pretty much all the tests I did was like really small code bases. But it was kind of more of like a proof of concept type thing, just to show that it was something I could do, and I, and I thought it was a fun project. But but yeah. Ansible, fantastic, highly recommend. Um, the next one on the list is VirtualBox. So VirtualBox, um, pretty synonymous. Um, basically, it's a it's a solid recommendation for anyone that doesn't have a data center uh, to to run all their virtual machines on. If you want to play around with virtual machines, um, but you're not quite sure, you don't want to like invest in a lot of in hardware to play around with virtual machines. VirtualBox is a fantastic option uh, to get your get your feet wet essentially into virtualization and playing around with VMs. Um, whether that's playing around with old old operating systems 
systems for nostalgia purposes or whether that's for, you know, running Linux servers to host host things, you know, regardless of how you use it, VirtualBox is fantastic. Uh, the next one kind of moving into some cybersecurity related themes is Nmap. So if you haven't heard of Nmap, Nmap is a essentially a network analyzing tool. So it, it's great for you know doing things like port scans and that kind of a thing, um, kind of a, an, a reconnaissance type thing for for cybersecurity. Um, I've used it sometimes, um, mainly just in my my home network um, to like test for open ports, make sure um, things aren't open that shouldn't be, and and talking about you know doing network and port scans. One thing I should mention. Do not use Nmap on a device you do not control or do not have permission to scan because you can get into some trouble by doing that. So if you're going to use Nmap, make sure you, one, either own the own the device and own the hardware, or two, you have permission from the owner to run the scan on. So that's just kind of a... Uh, kind of a, a PSA, if you will. The next one is Wireshark. So Wireshark is insanely helpful for doing packet analysis, um, for monitoring, you know, traffic flows on a network. Um, and another thing it's also really helpful for is if you're doing any kind of network-based programming, uh, whether you're doing a client-server architecture or just doing any networking at all in your programming, Wireshark is a fantastic tool to see if what you think you're actually sending or receiving is actually what is being sent across the wire. Um, so Wireshark, fantastic tool. Uh, the next one I'm going to touch on here is Raylib. So if you've heard me talking about my video game development, you're probably familiar with Raylib. Raylib is a graphics library written in C. Um, pretty, pretty great, fairly lightweight, um, doesn't really have any dependencies for it, so you, you can pretty much just compile against the library and kind of sort of good to go. Um, there, there are, I guess, a couple other graphics-related things you might have to compile with it, but it's, it's pretty good. Um, I've been enjoying using it, um, and... Like I said, it, I'm not good with graphics at all, um, so Raylib is definitely it, it's. I think it's pretty good. Um, so if you're if you're interested in doing any kind of like graphics development, they I believe they have they support multiple languages. I believe, um, but but definitely for you doing anything with like C or C I definitely can recommend it um, because if you've ever tried to do graphics in C and C you know that. Unlike, say, Java, there is no kind of built-in graphics library in the language, um, and I think Raylib is a is a pretty great option, and it also gives you other things, too, um, aside from just graphics. It also gives you some um, things like compression and, and file management, so there's a lot of other stuff, too, that, that's in Raylib aside from just being for graphics. The next one on the list I have is Valgrind. And if you haven't heard of this tool and you're a developer, um, I'm not sure where you've been because Valgrin is a fantastic tool and I would say is a must-have for any developer trying to ensure that their 
code does not leak memory. Um, so we've talked about on the past on past episodes of why you don't want to have memory leaks in your code, and Valgrin is a great tool in order to ensure uh, that you don't have any memory leaks in your code. Um, now I will say it sometimes can be kind of tricky to track down some memory leaks in your code. Um, So if I were to give you any advice, my advice would be to test with Valgrin early and often (laughs) Um, because that way you can catch the leaks early and they won't be able to compound and build over time and kind of get lost in all the output that Valgrin will spit out at you. Um, So if you can catch the memory leaks early, it definitely makes your life a heck of a lot easier. Um, Ask me how I know. (laughs) Uh, Definitely talking from personal experience on that one. I pretty much spent multiple weeks straight, as I documented on this podcast, using Valgrin trying to patch memory leaks in my code. And I will say it was not a fun time, but um, actually having done it and making sure that it is leak-free definitely felt really, really good. Um, So Valgrin is another fantastic open source tool. Um, The next one I have on the list is guacamole. Um, No, not the the dip that you uh, eat chips with. Um, Guacamole is essentially a remote management do-it-all kind of a thing Um, so you can do things from it it kind of allows you to have all of your remote connections in one place specifically what I use it for is for like VNC and RDP type clients Um, and the reason I use that is I don't have to worry about installing you know various clients on my my systems I can just navigate to my web browser go to my guacamole instance and I can connect remotely to any system that I want to in my home lab um, with a graphical user interface so that is definitely very nice um you also can have like telnet which definitely don't use telnet but it's it's available um or ssh connections as well um so you could have all your pretty much all your connections that you would ever need in your home lab in in one spot um but again uh one thing i guess i should note with great power comes great responsibility so if that is the case for you Uh, You definitely want to make sure that you have the proper security measures in place uh, in order to keep that guacamole instance secure so not anyone can just access it and then get access to all your servers. Uh, That's obviously not a good thing. Um, But but yeah, it's definitely a nice kind of all-in-one tool to get access to, to various graphical user interfaces. The next one I have on the list, I guess I'll kind of lump these two together, uh, WireGuard and OpenVPN. Uh, Both of them, I think, are fantastic VPN solutions. I've used both of them and have been, I've I've enjoyed using both of them. Um, Recently, though, I have switched to using WireGuard rather than OpenVPN purely from a performance standpoint. I mean, I was totally satisfied with OpenVPN. Um, I I didn't have any complaints with it or issues with it, Um, but WireGuard definitely does offer a significant speed improvement as far as kind of the the data speeds that you'll see uh, using WireGuard versus OpenVPN. Um, So that was the main reason I switched to it. Both of them are, are sound uh, projects, both sound VPN use uh, tools. Um, so I, I don't have any issues recommending one or the other. Um, it kind of, I guess, mainly depends on your use case. Um, but 
WireGuard, I will say, is a little bit more of a pain to set up because uh, you have to. It's a you have to you know manage keys and everything and add new keys and do a bunch of private and public key management. So it can be a little bit of a pain to set up, but. I mean, I think the the speed improvement that you get is worth it. Uh, but OpenVPN is super easy plug and play. Like you can, you know, just go to the the web interface for it, download a, a valid certificate, and then install it on your device, and then you're good to go. You don't have to really worry about any kind of configuration management or anything like that. Um, so definitely quality uh, VPN solutions there. The next one is Notify or NTFY. I've talked about this one recently on the podcast. This one is essentially a tool that allows you to send push notifications to your phone um, from basically anywhere. Um, So I have this set up in a cloud instance so I can get push notifications regardless of if my home lab's down or not. Um, And I have... Uh, I've configured these push notifications for everything to from notifying me when my Ansible script completes uh, that my uh, home lab has been successfully updated. Um, I have notify notifications set up for my backup script at different port parts of the backup script to kind of give me uh, a sense of where it is in the process of, of doing the backups. Since before, it was pretty much a black box of I kicked the thing off and then it was... <laughs> Uh, pretty much every now and then I'd remote into the one of the servers and, and check the logs to see if it completed or not. So that was definitely nice. Um, and another one I have set up is letting me know if my home lab ever goes down. Um, in essence, if the cloud server can't remote into my network, um, it'll let me know that the networks that my home lab is down. So that could um, be anything from a, a power outage to um, me doing manage management on my servers and have them offline currently um, or, or whatever the case may be. So though it's definitely a very, very helpful tool because the one thing about monitoring is it's only good if your monitoring will actually notify you of issues. Like you can monitor everything in your home lab, but if you have no kind of notification or way of alerting you if something is going wrong the the monitoring isn't really helping you that much now is it um so notify uh fantastic tool there um the next one on the list is jellyfin so jellyfin and plex have been kind of i guess i don't know if butting heads is is the right word but there's kind of like two camps you have the the plex camp and the jellyfin camp um personally for me i started out with plex and then i kind of heard about jellyfin and then I, I decided I'll go try it out. And then over the past few months, Plex has been kind of getting up to some real funky stuff in regards to like user privacy related things. So I've been pretty much exclusively been using Jellyfin recently. And I'm honestly pretty happy with it. Um, I don't have like super demanding needs as far as um, uh, as far as like streaming and stuff goes. But the thing that I kind of gravitated towards Jellyfin initially about was the fact that you didn't need to pay uh, 
or have like a lifetime pass like you do for Plex in order to get hardware transcoding, uh, which is kind of why I wanted to check out Jellyfin initially. Um, and then kind of after that happened, then all the stuff came up about Plex's uh, like user privacy stuff. And I was like, man, I'm kind of happy I moved over to Jellyfin. <laughs> um, so yeah, Jellyfin, um, great solution if you have a home media library for all of your your movies or tv shows or anything like that uh great way to to stream all that to your local devices or even if you are away from home vpning into your house with either open vpn or wireguard and then streaming you know from your phone or your laptop from anywhere in the world uh so pretty cool there the next one, we're getting back to development-based stuff, and this being MSYS2. So this is a tool that I've talked about before on the podcast, and it is by far my favorite way to build code on Windows. Um, and I, I put it over Windows Subsystem for Linux Purely because while Windows Subsystem for Linux is awesome and I've used it and enjoy it very much, the problem with Windows Subsystem for Linux is it doesn't natively compile Windows binaries. So you'd have to do some kind of like cross compilation thing in order to get Windows binaries to build. But MSYS2, on the other hand, essentially gives you all of that Linux slash Unix type feel and ability to build with Unix slash Linux type syntax and code while also being able to run natively on Windows as an EXE. So if you've ever written code for, say, Windows in either C or C++, for example, you'll know that is a it is a royal pain to do anything that isn't in the standard template library because it is different on how it's implemented on Windows versus how it's implemented on, say, Linux or Mac OS. So specifically, networking being the big one. But the nice thing about MSYS2 is you can write all your code for Linux, essentially, and Mac OS and just Unix in general, and then compile it with MSYS2, and then it just works as a you know Windows executable. Um, now, the one thing you do have to be aware of if you're using MSYS2 if you are planning on compiling and building programs with it, you'll need to make sure that when you go to ship your executable, you also include the required DLLs from MSYS2. Otherwise, uh, Windows systems that don't have MSYS2 installed aren't going to be able to run them. So that is one thing you do have to keep in mind, but I mean... If, if you're building applications for Windows anyway, you're probably including DLLs with your deliverable, so I don't necessarily think that's that big of a, a an issue or a roadblock, um, but it is just something to keep in mind. But yeah, MSYS2, definitely one of my favorite tools to, to build code on Windows. The next one on the list is Docker. So Docker is fantastic. If you haven't used Docker, I definitely highly recommend. It's a great way to run a lot of kind of more lightweight type applications on a very minimal small footprint. 
Um, I have a ton of Docker containers running right now. I've made my own Docker containers. Um, and the, the thing that's really nice about Docker is it basically is kind of like Java in the sense that you can build your code once, that being you build it inside a Docker container, and then you can run it anywhere. Anywhere where Docker's installed, you can spin up the container and it'll run just like it would run on any other system. So it is fantastic. The other nice thing about Docker too is you can scale it up pretty quickly by just spinning up more Docker containers through something like Kubernetes, for instance. Um, so you can have you know some kind of like dynamic load management there. Um, so yeah, Docker is definitely a fantastic open source tool. Um, as a bit of a cop-out answer for the next one, I put my projects, LOL. Um, but specifically, I would probably just reference my Server Connect project, mainly because out of all of the projects that I've personally written, that's kind of the one that I use on the most frequent basis almost every day um, just to kind of, you know, manage an SSH into all my various uh, home lab infrastructure. Um, but I mainly just kind of put that as a, as a funny cop-out. Uh, the next one on the list is GitLab. So GitLab is also a website, but also you can self-host it as well, uh, which is something that I do. I have my own self-hosted GitLab instance. And GitLab is, is honestly pretty amazing, um, all the stuff you can do with it. Uh, like you can have integrated CI-CD pipelines built into it. Now... The one thing you do have to be mindful of, if you're self-hosting GitLab, you also have to set up GitLab runners in order to be able to use the CI/CD pipelines. Um, but if you're just using GitLab natively, the GitLab.com site, you don't have to worry about setting up your own runners. Although you can set up your own runners and point the uh, the CI/CD pipelines to use those. Um, but yeah, th that's pretty powerful. There's integrated. Um, it's it. Imagine GitHub. You know how GitHub has all the um, issue tracking and milestones and bug reports and merge requests, pull requests, all that good stuff. All that's in GitLab as well. Um, and just being able to self-host all that is definitely fantastic. I definitely don't use it up to its maximum capability. Um, but some other things that you can do is you can have auto generate, you can have your own wikis for projects, which is something that's pretty cool. Um, write it all in Markdown and then have a, a wiki uh, for a project. Very cool. Um, like I said, the CICD pipelines is probably the big one that is, is really nice. Um, I've played around with that some and it is a, a really cool feature to see work in action. Um, so yeah, definitely recommend that uh, if you're a developer and you kind of want to self-host your own uh, repos. The next one is something that should also be uh, not a, a shocker to anyone, and that being Proxmox. So Proxmox, um, how, how do I put this? It, it's honestly one of the best hypervisors, in my opinion. It's open source. It uses QEMU and KVM for its virtualization, um, and it's just fantastic. Um, you can cluster multiple Proxmox nodes together. You can have high availability um, and Ceph, and basically if you you can configure it so... 
if one node goes down, whether that's because you need to take it offline to do updates or you want to add more RAM to it or swap out the CPUs with the if you cluster multiple nodes together, um, any virtual machines or clu- or um, LXC containers that were running on that host will automatically be redistributed to the other hosts that are still running and you'll have no downtime. Um, personally, I don't have high availability set up at the moment, but one thing that also is really nice is even if you don't have high availability or yeah, high availability set up, what you can do is you can migrate nodes between or migrate VMs rather between the nodes. Um, so one thing that I'll kind of often do is if I need to take a ser- a single server down for some reason and it's running a VM that I kind of need to be up, um, I'll just you know migrate it over to one of my other nodes real quick and then shut the server I need down, do the maintenance, bring it back up, and then migrate the node back over and have no downtime. So Proxmox is a fantastic um, virtualization solution. Highly recommend it uh, for anyone trying to get into home labbing. The next one I have on here is Nginx. So Nginx is a kind of like a web server type thing that you can host uh, web-based things on. I use it for hosting websites and Docker containers. Um, I use it as kind of like a reverse proxy system. So it's definitely um, very very good, very versatile. Um, I, I enjoy using it. And the last one I want to touch on here before we close out the episode is TrueNAS. So TrueNAS is my NAS solution of choice. Um, there's a ton of amazing features in there that I have barely even touched. Um, if you wanted to, you could have a full virtualization stack with inside TrueNAS. Uh, personally, I pretty much just use it as a bare bones NAS solution, um, and, and it's really easy to create, you know, different volumes with ZFS, create data sets and and pools, and 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 manage all that stuff. Doing snapshots and um, backing up data, and it's just a fantastic tool. Um, so TrueNAS, definitely another one on the top list. So that was, I don't know how many, a, a good chunk of open source projects, again, in no particular order. Um, I know I definitely missed some good ones. So if you guys have any good ones that I missed, definitely feel free to uh, inform me of those at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. I'd be happy to hear and take a look at some of those projects as well. And with that, let's get back into to the trivia question for this week. So if you recall, this week's trivia question is, this U.S. county is often described as being the home to the internet capital of the world. Is it A, Loudoun County, Virginia, B, Napa County, California, C, Travis County, Texas, or D, Wake County, North Carolina? If you said Napa County, California, congratulations on being wrong. Um, I tried to throw a little bit of a curveball in there with being kind of in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, but alas... Napa County, California, is not known to house the internet capital of the world. It is, in fact, A, Loudoun County, Virginia. Uh, Loudoun County, Virginia has uh, 
also known as being, I guess, data centerality and data center capital of the world. Um, used to be a lot of farmland, and then I guess AOL happened, and it's been kind of just turned into data centers. Um, and, and yeah, known as the internet capital of the world. So that was your trivia question for the week. And also remember that you're going to want to tune in to next week's episode also because we're going to be talking more hardware-based stuff um, for different uh, hardware solutions to throw in your home lab. Um, And spoiler for next week's episode, we're going to be doing it kind of a, uh, not necessarily price is right based, but a um, a different price tier, so different configurations and different builds uh, for each price bracket. So definitely be sure to tune in to next week's episode. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, you know what to do. Share it around. Um, subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. And if you have any questions about this episode or you have open source projects that I neglected to mention, shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. There's a link for that down in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. Merry Christmas, and I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast.